Alright folks, today I'm going to read from this little book I got called Baikal, Sacred Sea of Siberia. It's basically a book about Lake Baikal in between Mongolia and Russia. It is the largest freshwater lake in the world. Alright, let me just read. <clears throat> the sacred sea, the, the sacred lake, the sacred water, that is what native inhabitants have called Baikal from the beginning of time. So have Russians who had already arrived on its shores by the 17th century, as well as travelers from ab abroad admiring its majestic supernatural mystery and beauty. The reverence of Baikal, for Baikal held by uncivilized people and also by those considered enlightened for their time was equally complete and captivating. Even though it touched mainly the mystical feelings in the one and the aesthetic and scientific impulses in the other, the sight of Baikal would dumbfound them every time because it did not fit their conceptions either of spirit or of matter. Baikal was located where something like that should have been impossible. It was not the sort of thing that should have been possible here or anywhere else, and it did not have the same effect on the soul that indifferent nature usually does. This was something uncommon, special, and wrought by God. Baikal was measured and studied in due course even in recent years with the aid of deep sea instruments. Uh, this was published in I guess I could have read from. No, okay, yeah. Mm. Baikal was measured and studied. Okay, it acquired definite dimensions and became subject to comparison, alternately likened to Lake Tanganyika and to the Caspian Sea. They've calculated that it holds one fifth of all fresh water on our planet. One fifth. They've explained its origin and they've conjectured as to how species of plants, animals, and fish existing nowhere else could originate here and how species found only in other parts of the world many thousands of miles away managed to end up here. Not all these explanations and conjecture conjectures tally even with each other. Baikal is not so simple that it could be deprived of its mystery and enigma that easily, but based on its physical properties, it has nevertheless been assigned a fitting place alongside other great wonders that have already been discovered and described as well it, it, as it should, as well it should. And it stands alongside them solely because Baikal itself, alive, majestic, and not created by human hands, 
not comparable to anything and not repeated anywhere is aware of its own primordial place and its own life force. Valentin Rasputin from Baikal. And yeah, let me read some of this um, forward about the author. I was born in Siberia, about 300 kilometers from Lake Baikal, in a rail railroad junction town with the cold name of Zima, meaning winter. At that time, I could not have envisioned that one day I would have an American friend whose name was the same as my native town, Winter. At the end of the 19th century, my Ukrainian peasant ancestors were exiled here for setting fire to the estate manor house. Wow. With, with a blow of her fist, according to family legend, my great-grandmother killed a gendarme of the Tsar who had been sent to put down the rebellion. My ancestors walked the more than 11,000 kilometers to Siberia with chains on their legs that pounded them bloody. Damn. At that time, the principal music of Siberia was the clanging of chains. The most famous song of Siberia was about an escaped convict who climbed into a salty fish barrel, made a sail of his tattered shirt, and endeavored to cross by call beautiful in its majesty and terrifying in its fury man the shit you gotta do he made a fucking thing out of a salty fish barrel and a sail with his tattered shirt god damn it but if escape was possible from pre-revolutionary siberian penal servitude it became, which is coming to a modern day <laughs> developed countries right now. The penal servitude, anyways. It became almost impossible when the socialist dictatorship enclosed the beauty of Siberian nature with the barbed wire of the gulag and threw, and, and threw millions of people, millions of people behind it. Every spring, spring, when the snow began to melt in the Siberian taiga, Corpses of people who had attempted to escape began to show through. Wow, that is fucking scary. Alright, there's a poem. Um, Yevgeny Yatushenko met the musician Paul Winter in 1984 and, and inspired him to visit Baikal. Anyways, toward your crags, Baikal, unafraid of hurting myself on crags, I was forever rowing, a fugitive convict of fame. Without you, the horizon in Russia could not be radiant. If you are polluted, I cannot feel myself clean, like a cry of purity resounding over the perishing blue comes your voice, protect me, protect me, do you hear, my son? With bitterness, they were called snowdrops, like the first spring flowers. Wow. For those, exi for those exiled or imprisoned, the word Siberia became a symbol of non-freedom and violence. But still, people would sing this spirited folk song. And what is Siberia? I don't fear Siberia. 
Siberia is also the Russian land. I think in Archer they would make fun of uh, sending the people to Siberia if they mis misbehaved, I think, if I'm not mistaken, from the show Archer. Um, I think it apparently it's like a little CIA inside joke. Okay, anyways. And this was also true because for those who were born in Siberia, the word was at the same time a symbol of wild, untamed beauty and rigorously tender nature. Baikal is the blue heart of Siberia. It pulses amidst the green ocean of the taiga, rocking in its depths the ghosts of escaped convicts. On its bottom, overgrown with seaweed, lie their sawed shackles that one day with a triumphal howl of joy had been thrown into the wa in the water. Man, what a crazy story of a fucking lake of all things. Incredible. <laughs> okay, anyways. The funny thing is <clears throat> Russia and Moscow not too far from Lake Baikal, apparently. If I'm not mistaken. Or am I completely mistaken? <laughs> um, anyways. Um, okay. Along the shores of Baikal stand tiny hunter's huts, belonging to no one and at the same time to everyone, where by custom each visitor leaves behind for the next some cartridges, matches, and salt. Here already are other laws, non-governmental but Siberian, where there reigns not bureaucracy, but a feeling of common danger in the face of threatening elements that might appear suddenly like a wounded bear, or the scorching white face of frost, which can transform into a statue of ice anyone who submits to exhaustion and lies down in a snowdrift. Siberians, Siberians are children of a gigantic space so wearied by non-freedom that it has become a materialized yearning for freedom, a longing that is splashed across many thousands of kilometers, the roaring longing of rivers, of murmuring green, green summits, of the taiga, of snarling bears. Mm. I'll just finish reading this part. People of the so-called capitalist and socialist worlds have come face to face with the same tragedy. Tragedy, the deficiency of freedom. Mm -hmm. In capitalism, this deficiency is less apparent because it is masked, masked by the illusion of freedom. What am I reading here? Who is this fucker? What is he? Why is he saying all this shit, man? This is like. This is Yevgeny Yevtushenko, translated by Albert C. Todd. This was 29 January 1992 in New York. What the fuck? In capitalism, this deficiency is less apparent because it is masked by the illusion of freedom, while that which was called socialism has collapsed just because of the, of the degrading visibility of this deficiency. What? Masked by the illusion of freedom, while that which was called socialism has collapsed just because of the degrading visibility of this deficiency. 
Absolute freedom isn't possible. Indeed, it would be criminal for a man who has become completely free, becomes free from his conscience and, and from a sense of beauty, and that is fascism. Wow. Absolute freedom isn't possible. Indeed, it would be criminal for a man who has become completely free, becomes free from his conscience and from a sense of beauty, and that is fascism. I don't know if I agree with that, but okay. But there is a grand sense of freedom preserved in feeling the preciousness of space, in feeling the uniqueness of each blade of grass on which, on which the dew gleams like tiny eyes of the earth. Precisely because we die with rapture before the wide open lap of the Grand Canyon and before Baikal, which seethes in anger and caressingly licks its shores in moments of tenderness, we are in this instant neither Russian nor American, but heirs of the in indivisible treasure of all humankind, nature. Nature! I would say David... Sir David Attenborough also agrees. Dostoevsky once formulated the prophetic term omni-response. This is what is needed now most of all in art and politics. To be a patriot only of one's own country is insufficient, even criminal, because one national egoism unavoidably, unavoidably comes into conflict with another. Patriotism of all humanity is the only salvation. People like Peter Matson, Paul Winter, and Boyd Norton are, thank God, removed from politics, but all three belong to a profession I call rescuers, gathering together kernel by kernel, dewdrop by dewdrop, crumb by crumb, all the beauty scattered over the earth. They have succeeded in lifting Lake Baikal in their arms like a gigantic silver disc, drawing it near to the Grand Canyon, their country's equivalent symbol of natural wonder, so that through nature they might come to know each other and become brothers forever, as did Paul Winter, born in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and, and I, born in Zima Junction, Siberia. Once when I was limping after an operation, a surgery, Paul Winter gave me a family relic, his father's apple tree walking stick. Wow. Although it is dried out and many years old, it sometimes seems to me that if I would thrust it into Russian earth, this stick would begin to blossom <laughs> and be covered with apples. In essence, Paul Winter's father's stick bore fruit long ago, one of which is this book. If all people on, on earth were so universally human as Peter Matson, Paul Winter, and Boyd Norton, there would be no more wars. Dostoevsky once wrote, Beauty will save the world. But who will save beauty? <laughs> it gets better. Don't worry. <laughs> Part 1 High, hill, high hills and exceedingly high rocky cliffs are all around it. Over 20 times 1,000 versts, versts and more have I dragged myself and nowhere seen any like unto these. 
Exceedingly many birds, geese, and swans swim upon the sea, covering it like snow. It has, it hath fishes, sturgeon and salmon, sterlet and omel, 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 and whitefish, and many other kinds. The water is fresh, and had, and hath great seals and sea lions in it. When I dwelt in Mezen, I saw not like unto these in the big sea. And the fishes there are plentiful, the sturgeon and salmon are surpassingly fat. Thou canst not fry them in a pan, for there will be naught but grease. <laughs> and all this had been wrought by Christ in heaven for mankind, so that resting content he should render praise unto God. I disagree. This is all because of a volcano and vibrations. How the fuck does this? seal and a sea lion live up in the middle of a fucking lake in the middle <laughs> like landlocked landlocked how the fuck did these sea lions get in here these seals how the fuck yeah they still don't know they, some, they say some people brought them some people brought them from somewhere else who the fuck is gonna carry a seal I mean maybe maybe when all this was like covered in ice maybe that could be possible okay Past eight in the evening on the last day of August, after a ten-hour climb, we haul ourselves to the high rim of the Baikal Canyon. From where we stand, high plateaus in hard, clear light seem to stretch forever westward to the Urals. Facing east, my companion, the huge Siberian woodsman Semyon Ustinov, spreads his long arms. Far below his beloved Baikal, the most ancient lake on earth, is shrouded in mist that drifts up the steep talus slope as if in search of us. Yeah, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Okay. <clears throat> the canyon rim on which we stand is a mile or more above the surface of the lake, whose greatest depth is 5,700 feet or 1.1 miles. This lake is 1.1 miles deep, with an additional 4 miles of sediment above the bedrock. The Great Baikal Rift is seven times as deep as the Grand Canyon, by far the deepest land depression on the planet. Hmm. I wonder if this is where it all came out from then. Interesting. For the past week, we have been exploring Lake Baikal and talking about the threats to its ecology with a group including Semyon and his friend, the controversial, controversial writer Valentin Rasputin. The lake, which lies in a great crescent nearly 400 miles long, fills a widening valley where two tectonic plates pulling apart drop the depression ever lower. This vast plateau north and west of Baikal, known to geologists as the Siberian platform, is being separated from Asia to the south and east by the shift in the Earth's crust. But because the fault's floor is widening about one inch every year, Baikal can collect new sediment without any loss to its huge volume of water. Although its surface is more or, or less the size of Lake Superior, Baikal holds nearly the equivalent of all five of the Great Lakes. God damn, all five of the Great Lakes. 
or about one-fifth of all the fresh water on Earth. This astonishing volume might be better understood another way. If all of Baikal's 334 tributaries were diverted, and its sole outlet, the Angara River, were to drain it, the emptying would take 400 years. The Amazon, Ganges, Mississippi, Nile, and Congo together with all the other riv rivers and streams on earth would have to flow a year or more just to refill it. Wow. This is fresh water too. Because the rift grows ever larger, the four miles of lake floor contain matter that has accumulated for 20 to 30 million years. Lake Tanganyaka in Africa's western rift valley, which looks like a miniature Baikal, even in its distinct distinctive hmm, crescent shape. Hmm. Wonder why it's a crescent shape. Is the Earth's sec Earth's second oldest lake? Two million years. What did I tell you about lakes? The second deepest at four thousand seven hundred feet. Every animal gathers to drink at the at the watering hole. A lake is nothing but a big ass watering hole. Where do the animals come from? Anywhere water and vibration is involved, I think you have life. There's those are the conditions needed for life. You don't even need light. You don't even need light. That's what they're starting to see in the underwater volcanic in the underwater volcanoes, the vents. No light goes down there. There's life. Water and vibration is all you need, I think. Well, temperature too. But then vibration and temperature, I think, is the same thing. It's just a different... Okay, anyways. Even the largest of ordinary lakes may live at most 50,000 years before they fill with silt, evaporate, and die. And by this criterion... The blue pearl of Siberia is all but eternal. It is often called an inland sea. Ye glorious sea, ye sacred Baikal, goes on, goes an old Siberian song, or even like the Red Sea, an incipient ocean. Hmm. Hydrothermal vents in the lake floor at Frolika Bay in the northeast the first such vents ever located in freshwater support rich communities of bottom life, including translucent shrimps and snails, large mushroom-shaped large mushroom-shaped sponges, and other forms ordinarily associated with salt water. What is more, life exists right to the bottom. In Lake Tanginaka, it dies out a few hundred feet down. Because of deep oxygen circulation that is thought to be caused by mysterious tides drawn from such deep water by the sun and moon. Hmm. I don't know about all that, but warm water from vents in the cold deeps doubtless contributes to the plentitude of life. Whereas, well, I guess you need... Do you? You don't no. Nah. Whereas an ordinary lake might have three 
amphipod species and eight flatworms. Baikal has 255 amphipods and 80 flatworms, including a brute well over a foot long that devours fish. Of Baikal's 2,000-odd aquatic forms, at least 1,200 are endemic. I think that means only in that location. Two-thirds of the lake's flora and much of its fauna are found nowhere else. Yeah, okay. Among these is the Nerpa, the only freshwater seal on Earth, a creature I have long waited to see. Little sediment enters Baikal from the crystalline, crystalline rock formations all around, which release a bare trace of salts and other minerals. Oh yeah, that's another thing. You need salt. Salt for electricity. Okay. The primordial deep left undisturbed is traditionally as clear and pure as distilled water. Yeah, man. You see some of these drone shots of the of, of Lake Baikal, man. It's fucking clear as fuck, man. Its extreme clarity is intensified by the activities of a minute crustacean. Crustacean. Baikal Epissura, which strains out algae, plankton, and bacteria. In good years, the three, mil the three million Epissura that inhabit the water column under each square meter of the surface keep the water so pristine that a bright Kopec castaway might still be seen glinting a hundred feet below. Um... Yeah, I'll keep reading. This is, pretty, this is all pretty interesting. Epichura is but one of the hundreds of endemic crustaceans, including 200-odd species of freshwater shrimp that make the lake a vast laboratory for the study of ecology and evolution. For all these reasons, this huge blue crescent is the in the farthest part of Central Asia is generally considered the most interesting body of water on the Earth. Like the Galapagos, Baikal is a closed ecosystem since all of the lake's water comes from the surrounding mountains and the whole watershed is only twice as large as the lake itself. Even its main tributary, the Selanga River, which brings about half of Baikal's water north out of Mongolia, is entirely isolated from other watersheds or river systems and introduces no outside genetic influence. The forests surrounding Lake Baikal have few endemic species, yet they abound in robust Siberian wildlife, including the lustrous tree weasel called the sable, as well as red and musk deer, moose, Eurasian wolves, brown bears, and not so many years ago, the Siberian tiger. One also finds the turkey-sized wildfowl called the capercaille, a huge black grouse, which is rumored to become so transported by its own courtship's, courtship song that it closes its eyes and deafens itself with its own din. Okay, Semyon Ustinov was born east of the lake at a village called Fox Place in the country of the Buryat Mongol people north of Ulan Ude. And he speaks movingly of the river Kerba, where he spent many lonely hours as a boy. One day near sunset from a large hill across the stream, he heard a Buryat, Buryat shepherdess on horseback 
singing about everything she saw, and her singing harmonized heaven, earth, and mountains. And hmm, he remembers the currents of water filled with light, and how her voice, how her high voice, singing of them, was so pure and clear. Some years later, his father took him to the high point in the eastern mountains from where the boy first saw the sacred lake. I understood at once, he says, that Baikal represented the same mysterious totality of the universe that the Buryat, that the Buryat shepherdess was celebrating in her song. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to go visit this place, man. Here on the peak of the Baikal Ridge, the wind is growing cold. A lone raptor, as if drawn to the last sunlight, circles high in a darkening blue sky that will fill with stars. Quickly, in dusk, we descend loose rocks to a small gorge with a rivulet of cold gray water. Dark comes as the, light, as the la last dry wood is gathered from the silver skeletons of a recumbent pine. We build our fire and make tea, devouring dry hunks of bread and sausage. Already the half moon has gone behind a sharp peak of the rim, and with no light on his on this treacherous incline, we must perch all night on big, cold, broken slabs, huddled close to the wind-whipped fire, one side burning and the other freezing in temperatures, which by Semyon's estimates would fall into the 30s before dawn. Look at this shit. Claiming that the Rayon Corps was needed by the Air Force, the bureaucrats of the USSR State Planning Committee denounced these early champions of the environment as CIA agents and traitors. The Siberians' protests were entirely unavailing, and the Baikalsk, Baikalsk plant began operation. Okay. Okay, so basically, pollution from factories built there. Humans, man, fucking A, dude. The shit we do for some money. Here, let's go destroy nature so we can put some Monopoly money in our pockets. God damn, man. Okay, let's see. Stirred by Baikal's beauty and immensity, Winter returned twice in the next year with the idea of composing a Baikal suite that might help to convey not only the wonder of Russia's sacred lake, but also its urgent symbolism in the worldwide rise of, an, of environmental consciousness. The suite would be based on the mythic adventures of a young Russian boy, and the, and the music would be counterpointed by the sounds of nature, water, wind, and echo, as well as the voices of wild creatures, an effect he had already experimented with successfully in musical colloquies with wolves, elephants, and whales. I gotta go look this guy up, that sounds pretty interesting. Okay. Hmm. Alright, so 
part two. Check this out. In our speech, it means fiery place. Here formerly was solid fire. Then the land collapsed and it became a sea. From that time, we call our sea Baikal. L. E. Eliasov. From where does the name Baikal come? Did you hear that? A fiery place here formerly was solid fire, because it was a volcano. I think. Anytime there's a lake left behind, usually crater collapsed, and yeah, the water just uh, water collects. But I don't know if that's the case with this. This uh, lake is. It's interesting because it's so deep. So, so I'm thinking, what if this was a giant volcano, and the lake is basically the empty, hollow shaft left behind, and all this land surrounding it basically is the lily pad. And the lake is basically the stem, the top of the, the, the navel, basically. Anyways. Let's see, what else do I want to read? There's, uh, oh yeah, there's this one place. Uh, also, well, let me see. Yeah, part three. Well, let me see. Let me read some of this shit, man, from part two. Okay, let's see. We meet in the Domo Devio Air Terminal east of Moscow and depart together from Irkutsk, the capital of Siberia. A journey approximately as long as the journey from New York to Moscow. The plane crosses the Urals after midnight, not far north of the town of Nizhny Tagil, on the eastern slope, where air pollution is so intense, according to one factory worker, that at our works, pigeons disappeared long ago. We don't even have crows. We look up at the sky and are horrified. To the south lies the Caspian Sea, afflicted these days with high counts of dangerous chemicals known as phenols, and further east what is left of the Great Aral Sea, which because of unwise and heavy-handed irrigation projects commenced at the same time as the exploration of Baikal, has shrunk by two-thirds in the past 28 years. East of Omsk the and west of Tomsk, the plane descends through dark, foul weather to lone lights sadly separated from one another like the massed lights of scattered fishing vessels moored in darkness. This is... Okay. It's 
Sib Ir, the sleeping land of the native Buryat Mongols who ruled the region when the first Cossacks arrived in the 17th century, is still widely discounted as a dark and barbarous land of icy, cold wind, trackless swamp, and labyrinth, labyrinthine forest of starving, of starving wild beasts and desperate prisoners. But the Siberian capital of Irkutsk at one time, like St. Louis, a frontier trading station about two-thirds of the way between the Urals and the Pacific, arose at the crossing of many ancient routes to Mongolia, Tibet, and China, and could already claim a geographic institute at the time of American independence. Irkutsk equipped Russia's expeditions to the Pacific, including those which discovered the Bering Sea and founded the first European settlements in Alaska and Northern California. Lake Baikal has already suffered a very serious decline in both size and populations of omul, an endemic subspecies of arctic whitefish that is Baikal's main commercial fish. The native creatures, especially adapted to the lake's uncommon purity, are thought to be ten times more vulnerable to habitat pollution than more widespread forms, and among the most fragile, it appears, is the minute filtering agent Epichura. An estimated 7% of Epichura habitat is already lost. Other forms are being replaced by more tolerant and widespread sub Siberian species that usurp their, their age-old niches, niches in Baikal. Island of Olkon is considered sacred by the Boryats, who believe it to be the home of an infernal, infernal deity called Begdozi, in whose keeping are the souls of the wicked. To this deity, they offer innumerable sacrifices. The Mongolians also have a story about this island. They believe that it was once the home of Genghis Khan. All right. Let's see. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to find. Um, yeah, here we go. Late in the morning, we go ashore. Olkon is drier than the mainland, and the little town of Kuzir, in its extreme bareness, looks less like a taiga settlement than a sub-arctic outpost in the tundra. 
a joint Russian-American archaeological expedition to Olkhon in 1975 uncovered two skeletons of Asiatic mongoloid stock, one of them 8,000 years old, and it is thought that the Buryat have been here since that time. In the 13th century, the nomadic Buryat Mongols under Genghis Khan, who was, who was born in the rolling hills south and east of Baikal, ruled most of what is now the Soviet Union, from the Pacific West all the way to the Moscow River. But in the 16th century, the last Khan of Sibir was overthrown, overthrown by the Tsar's Cossacks, or frontiersmen, and in the 17th century, the, the Buryat, at least, were pacified for good by the advent of Lamaist Buddhism from Tibet. According to papers by American scholars kept in the Ethnographic Museum uh, in Kuzir, the peoples who traveled across the Bering Strait to North America originated in the region of Lake Baikal, a theory made more interesting by recent findings that the Ameri Indians were not many different peoples as was once assumed but closely related groups from a single region yeah remember the other episode I was doing on Japan Korea and Mongolia and they said how Korea the 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 DNA seems to have come from this area around Lake Baikal which is fucking crazy similarly the racial makeup of the Japanese changed drastically in the 500 years between 250 BC and 250 AD, apparently because of the arrival of a new people who overwhelmed the aboriginal Ainu and Jomon. Look at this shit, the Ainu and the Jomon. According to blood type studies described this year by Professor Keiichi Omoto of Tokyo University, this new people is also thought to have originated near Baikal. Baikal's proximity to the Gobi Desert of Outer Mongolia, once an abundant grassland swarming with game, supports the theory that this sacred lake was a gathering and dispersal point for Asian peoples. In recent decades, the Buryat, like the Yakuts and Evenki, suffered forced collectivization together with virtual annihilation of their shamans and tribal leaders in what an Evenki writer has described as an all-out war against our ancient way of life. Yeah, because this is what they do, man. Fucking the Pope, whatever you call it, Christianity, communism, capitalism, whatever the fuck you want to call it. They go in, they destroy the language, the culture of the indigenous people and then here boom brainwash them with clockwork orange them with with material goods will make you happy and then go destroy their environment trash the place leave behind pollution and just 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 trash the place and then leave no go on to the next wherever and we've been doing this shit An estimated 10,000 of the Buryat people perished under Stalin and almost all their Buddhist temples were destroyed. These days, the Buryat mostly live across the lake in Trans-Baikal in their own autonomous republic of Buratia. Its capital is Ulan Ude on the Selenga River. This is what I'm saying. P 
people just want to be left the fuck alone to live their lives how they want to instead of being told by cocksucking governments who suck corporations dick that's all they do the government is just tax collectors now and these are our leaders and 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 they're telling us what to do how to live our lives who to it's like why why did we set up this government who is fucking retarded and telling us to to live like idiots how the fuck did we get here all right Other indigenous peoples, the Evenki and Yakuts, have their own autonomous regions farther north. But Mr. Rasputin, as Leonid insists on calling him to avoid comrade, informs us that there is still about 500 Buryat on Olkhan, about a third of the sparse island population, and a few copper-colored Buryats, flat-faced and slit-eyed, may be seen here in the little town. Climbing uphill from Kuzir, we cross the hard-cropped moor to a jutting rock that overlooks a beautiful, clear crescent beach of sand, and here Paul Winter, in search of natural echoes, plays on his soprano saxophone the compositions that he calls earth music. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Points north toward a far dark, uh, far dark island that resembles a beached whale. Ushkanyi, Ushkanyi is a Buryat word meaning hares. So it is said. These are the seal islands of our destination. He swings his big arm in an arc toward the northwest, where the mountain wall is shadowed in blue mist. Riti, he cries, naming a Buryat sacred place on the Baikal Lena Preserve where he lives. Then down the cliffs to a grotto in a tower of white marble that is set off by brilliant orange lichens. Buryat, where a ledge overlooks the black and depth depthless water, or so he seems to say in pantomime, the Buryats of old of old came to spear seals for meat and fur. Nerpa. Uh, let's see what else this whole area man like is okay so I want to check out Baikal Lake Baikal I definitely want to check out Kamchatka the the peninsula in in Russia northern Russia I think that's uh, right. This is part of Russia, right? Mm, yeah, this is all part of Russia. It's a peninsula. It's uh, next to the Sea of Okhotsk. Oh, so this is this is this area. Okay. Anyways, let me see. Okay, yeah, here we go. Fuck it, I'll read this part. Okay. Under a gray northern sky, the Baikal rounds the northern tip of Olkhon Island to the meteorological meteor 
Meteorological Station at Wazor Bay, a small cove and pebble beach between rock portal between rock portals. From here, we travel inland on a truck bed on a lonely farmstead in high barren country, inhabited by old Buryat woman by an old Buryat woman and her family. Alexandra Argalovna Bosueva is pure Mongol, her skin the color of dark copper filled with sun. She wears copper earrings, a blue kerchief, blue dress, boots, talking with Valentin Rasputin. She explains her Buryat patronymic. Her father had the name Argal, the word for an old male seal. Both the Buryat and Ivanki peoples had seal worship cults since this animal provided meat and fat as well as dense warm fur. Yeah, this makes me think of uh that animated movie God dang it, man. What the fuck was that called? Animated movie about this dad with his daughter and son living in a lighthouse. With seals around them, it's like, I think it's like a Celtic story. Oh my god, what, anyways. I am of the seals family, she says. In other days, children were given names of the wild animals, but now, of course, they are given Russian names. Interesting, that's so interesting. Her daughter is married to a Russian, and although Alexandra Argalovna sometimes speaks Buryatin to her grandchildren, her daughter prefers that she speak to them in Russian. She shrugs and smiles with the quiet composure of an old Inuit, meaning Eskimo, woman of North America, whom she much resembles. As a young woman, Alexandra Argalovna was forced to work on a collective farm Yet her people have retained such traditional practices as the burning of the dead, which allows the soul to travel swiftly to the spirit world. Look at this shit. Burning of the dead. Where the fuck did this come from? All the way. Burning of the dead. If this area was volcanic. Alright, anyways. As she explains... A soul buried deep in the earth can never see the sun. Wow. Did you hear that? Huh. So I wonder why. That's so interesting. Her own mother was buried in the earth because it was a time of drought. And had her family been suspected of having caused a forest fire, they would have been shot as enemies of the people. I see. <laughs> the old woman says this cheerfully without resentment. After all, the leaders had explained to them that they had to work hard and sacrifice unceasingly to avoid war, since only the state and its heroic Red Army stood between the Buryats and the American bases that encircled them with missiles and hydrogen bombs. Her father had instructed her not to be resentful, but to accept with a good heart whatever came. Saying this, she laughs a deep and quiet laugh to show that she has lived accordingly 
It means to accept life in the same spirit to the end. I agree. Suddenly and unselfconsciously in a strong voice, Alexandra Argalovna begins singing. Her song is a peaceful chant about seeing the grains grow and how watching one's children and, get and grandchildren gives one the same deep, deep feeling of the seasons. How fine life was when the harvest was good and the children grew strong when her song is finished. She says quietly, Perhaps this is all I can sing now. In the old days, we used to dance and sing, but now we have abandoned that completely. On the collective farm, we have no time for it. They have, they gave no holidays. Yeah, because these fucking cocksuckers, these canes who went and built cities, would go and bring all these indigenous people from their land and put them to work. Fuck these people. Fuck these fools, man. Fuck these fools, man. After a while, she says, There were sacred trees known to my parents, and when my parents died, the trees died too. Nevertheless, we still make offerings at those places, and we ask for rain or for fair weather. We believe in all living things. We have stones and trees we revere very much, and we bring them offerings each month. And, we, and when we kill a sheep, we make an offering too. There were sacred places in the mountains where only men could go, but the shamans all died long ago. Even when I was a young girl, these sacred places were thought of as unimportant. In ancient times, all life was considered sacred. Now those times are gone. Nobody thinks about it anymore. Yeah, because it's all materialism, man. We're not part of nature. Humans are the dumbest animals on this planet. Paul Winter offers to play for her and does so. Standing in the yard on this great on this gray day as behind him a dark harrier hawk crossing Okay, anyways. I just think it's funny that this friend's name is Rasputin, or his last name is Rasputin. Mm. Let me see. What else can I read? Part 4. There are not only fish in the lake, declared a Mongol. There are spirits, each one naughtier than the other. The Lord of the Waters... Ulain Kat rules them, and when he's angry, it's no joke for the fishermen. He juggles with the boats like a sorcerer with shells. Foolish savage, a soldier then said to me. He believes in spirits. Isn't he an idiot? And the soldier added with conviction. It's not a spirit. It's a devil who is hidden at the bottom of the lake. Who told you? The old people have seen him. Old Greg. <laughs> Old Greg. Okay. Uh, part four. Let's see. 
just Well, I'm just gonna pause it here real quick. Alright, uh, part five. These intros are pretty good. On the summits of the bare peaks of the Lena Vitim watershed, and with a panorama of wild gray, gray bare rocks before his eyes, the traveler feels that he is somehow stranded in a very alien world. In a world very alien to the anthropological one, a world of lifeless, mute, wild, and grimly monotonous rocks. Not only do the cries of the birds which happen by, but even the weak explosion of gunshot resound in a somehow alien manner in this silent kingdom of stone masses. Not even a storm could raise a noise here, and the silent wind causes despondency, its pressure cramping one here. Um, yeah, I'll just read this last part and then I'll end it there. Alright, so where was I? This morning on the northwest coast, Semyon announced that he and I and young Andre Zaka Bukowski of the TV crew are to go ashore at once and attempt an ascent of the Baikal Ridge that towers above us. Semyon arranges the captain to pick up pick us up further down the coast, and though the rendezvous is for noon tomorrow, we will take no tent or sleeping bag or even blankets. We'll have Good weather, Semyon assures us. From the lakeshore, a, forest, a forested valley climbs to a bench ridge from which a steep slope of talus rock mounts to the rim. We enter the forest of white birch, larch, and Siberian pine and begin our ascent. This is the part of the preserve called Brown Bear Coast or Bear Corner because of this robust population of brown bears, which are much larger here in than in Europe, Semyon says. Almost at once we come upon signs of bear, not only feces, but bear ripped trees and saplings snapped while making while marking territory. To demonstrate, Semyon hurls himself into the roaring and clawing. <laughs> and even an anthill raked flat by a bear, then used as a bed by a passing red deer. I pick up some bear scat to see what they are eating, and Semyon hisses at me, urging me to drop it, growling a word that might be trigonosis. Semyon and Andre speak little more English than I speak Russian, and without Leonid to translate, I climb somewhat apart to spare all three of us the struggle of trying to include me in the conversation. However, Semyon is acquainted with the Latin names of many of the plants and all the animals, and this is useful. For many years, he has been a naturalist ecologist, advising hunters about wild animals in this region. I live everywhere here, he declares proudly. Ravens and Eurasian jays, brown spotted nutcrackers, in a clearing stands 
a small tree of orange berried Ryabina, from which Andre picks a few fine sprigs to flavor vodka. Higher up, we pass through Rodeau, Dendron, Thicket, and Spirea. We pause to eat black gooseberries, red heath berries. In sign language, I inquire if the dim path we follow intermittently was made by large animals or by, or by man and Samuel halts to lend weight to his answer. The only ones using this path, he informs me, banging his chest, are bar, bear. Near the mountain ridge, the forest is laid open by avalanches of rough, dark, gray talus. The chipmunk talus. Hmm. The chipmunk burnduck gives its birdie call, and there is also a small ground squirrel crane color. We see no other animals and birds are scarce. On the ridge the day is hot and humid. There are sweat bees. Semyon hurls the flow of rocks aside in an effort to uncover the trickle of water far beneath. But on the steep slope his excavations keep collapsing and finally he straightens up disgusted an ancient cross on a small chain dangling from his shirt. He is a descendant of the old believers, the conservative sect of Orthodox Christianity that fled European Russia when Peter the Great exposed his countrymen to dangerous liberal ideas. This is interesting, man. This whole area. Baklani Island, shaman site carving. Shamans, Genghis Khan, freshwater, volcanoes, fucking Mongolia, Russia, all kinds of shit, man. Lakes. It's all there, man. It's all there. Water, volcano, vibrations provide environment an environment for life to come forth i'm gonna look more into it and i'm gonna try to plan to go there and yeah that was uh baikal sacred sea of siberia peace